And we are, I think, a couple of weeks into our summer series now, and our speaker tonight for the auditorium class is uh, Dr. Jesse Robertson. And uh, it's good to see his face. I've had him for three or four classes at Freed when I was there. And he's here to speak to you tonight on 1 Corinthians 3 and 4. And uh, he has a wife named Kayla and three children, Jacob, Emily, and Anna. And he is one of the pulpit ministers at the Estes Church of Christ in Henderson, Tennessee. That's one of the churches right near campus at Freed Hartman. And he's also the Dean of Graduate Studies and Outreach at Freed Hartman University. So, Jesse, we appreciate you coming. Good evening. It's my pleasure to be here and be with you tonight and uh, have, uh, even though I only know a few of you, and I, and I do know a few, uh, I, we have um, a really strong relationship between Freed Hardeman and this congregation, and I want to thank you for that. You send us the best young people in the world, and we try not to mess them up in any way, and we're thankful to get them. And uh, we, uh, David, Shannon, and I were in school some together, my wife, and, and uh, all of us were in school together, and so we're very glad about that. And I appreciate that relationship. So, yes, I have three children. I have an 18-year-old, a 17-year-old, and a 7-year-old. And if you don't understand about those 10-year gaps, I can explain it to you after services <laughs> in private. But uh, those things happen, and we're very, very thankful. So we've got one that just finished his first year at Freed Hardeman, and then the second one, she'll be going there this fall. And then uh, we get to save money for 10 years before the next one comes along. And I guess to do that. So that's a very good thing. So good to be with you tonight. Um, I have uh, I've had opportunities to work full time in ministry. And then I've had the opportunity to teach at Freed Hardeman and to work part time. And another opportunity I get is to come and visit uh, with places, uh, uh, sometimes in summer series and sometimes in gospel meetings. And so I'm very glad to be with you tonight. The first place that I uh, served full time as a minister was in a small town less than 1,500 people in Arkansas, uh, between Jonesboro and Blyville, Leachville, Arkansas. And uh, probably not too many of you have been through there, but it's a, a loving congregation of about 85 people, and it's uh, very good for us. And uh, up the road, about an hour, is another t town called Gosnell, Arkansas. And, and uh, the congregation is small. There was only one full-time employee, and it was me, so I was the... Uh, uh, preaching pulpit minister and the youth minister and the involvement minister and uh, the church secretary as well. So that was fine. And uh, one day the phone rang and uh, a woman's voice said, is Charlie there? Well, we didn't even have anyone in the congregation named Charlie. And, and I said, no, I, th I think you've got the wrong number. What number were you calling? And I still remember what she said because it was just one, it was two digits inverted from our church number. She said 5932274. Well, our number was 539. And she said 593, but she dialed the wrong number. I said, uh, trying to be helpful, I said, this is the Leachville Church of Christ and you dialed the wrong number. This is 539 and you need to dial 593, I think. She said, this is not the Gosnell body shop. And Gosnell's a long way off. I said, no, this is the Church of Christ. So she hung up. Just a moment, the phone rang again. Is Charlie there? I said, no, ma'am, this is the Leechville Church of Christ. And what number are you calling? She said, 593-2274. I said, this is 539. She said, well, well, my dad gave me this number and told me it was the right number. I said, well, you've got the right number, but you're dialing it incorrectly. She hung up again. 
Phone rang third time. Is Charlie there? I said, you mean Charlie at the Gosnell Body Shop? She said, yes. Oh, you could hear the relief in her voice. I said, no, that number is 593 and this is 539. She said, no, I already tried that. I got some preacher. So. <laughs> now you can't make this stuff up. That's the truth. And uh, so I said, well, this is that same preacher and you're calling the wrong number. And you know, she didn't call back anymore after that. I don't think she ever got in touch with Charlie or got her car fixed or anything else. But, but uh, anyway, you know, we try to give the, uh, uh, do the best we can in the world in which we live. And, and we try to encourage people where we can. I hope I can encourage you tonight. Our, uh, our study is directing us tonight to 1 Corinthians 3 and 4. And I want to invite you to open your Bible there. I want to start with the first two verses of 1 Corinthians 4. And in a way, we're starting in the middle of things by doing that. But I think it will help us to understand some of the profound and very helpful things in 1 Corinthians 3. You know, uh, I'm sure from your previous study of 1 Corinthians, that the church in Corinth had a number of problems. Uh, division and infighting was a problem. Uh, morality was a problem. Worship uh, was uh, a mess, apparently, and so a lot of explanations about how they can have the right heart and the right mind and the right actions in worship as well. And so uh, in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul is trying to help them not have favorite preachers, right? Paul and Apollos and Peter and one or the other people sort of had allegiance to. And so here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. This is how you should regard us, Paul says. And, and by us, I think he means the ministers of the gospel himself and and Peter and Apollos and, you know, we could have a long list if we listed all of the New Testament. Here's how you should regard us, he says, as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. Servants and stewards. There are going to be a number of images uh, tonight, the three in particular that I want us to uh, really think about. The first one is this servant-steward image. A steward. What's a steward? A steward is a person who's supposed to practice stewardship. Stewardship means management. Someone has entrusted something to you and you have the responsibilities of management for the person to whom it belongs. And we don't need to get confused about our stewardship. It's a responsibility, but it's not the highest responsibility. We're to treat it as if it were our own. If it's an investment, how would I want it investment treated? If it is, how would I want it managed? If it's property, how would I want it cared for? If it's people, how would I want them looked after? Stewardship. But we're not to confuse the role of the steward with the king. I don't know how many of you were fans of the movie Lord of the Rings that came out, the whole series of movies came out a few years ago. But uh, even if you've never seen those, you'll understand this. There's a scene in that film in which the rightful heir to the throne comes back after years to take the throne back. And there's been a steward 
that has been in charge of the kingdom. And as it's, de it's depicted very appropriately because there is a die or an elevated platform on which the king's throne sits. And it's empty. No one sits in it because the king is away and he's left the kingdom entrusted to a steward. And down on the ground level with all of the uh, area where the servants would be standing and serving, there's a chair and that's where the steward sits. It's sort of like a throne, but it's not the throne. The throne is up here and the steward sits in the chair down here. And in this particular part of the story, the king has been gone for so long and there's not been a king that the, the throne is dusty and, and dark and just sort of in the background. And the steward sitting on the steward's chair from which he manages the kingdom and in effect rules, but only as a steward, his chair has become like the throne and he feels very passionate about that. And in this case, when the rightful heir returns, guess what he doesn't want to do? He doesn't want to give it back. But the role of the steward is far secondary to the role of the king. The role of the steward is secondary to the role of the master or the owner. It's a very important role because you are entrusted with the property of another and expected to manage it as you would manage your own, to care for it. But you're also supposed to remember that it doesn't really belong to you. And so Paul says we are servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And the mysteries of God have just been illustrated by him in 1 Corinthians 3 in two very compelling, very powerful metaphors, images. One is of a field with a crop growing in it and the other is the image of a building built on a foundation. And in these images, these parables, so to speak, he conveys something of the mysteries of God. So if we turn back to 1 Corinthians 3, not all the way to the beginning, but uh, back to uh, verse 5, where he picks up this discussion about Apollos and Cephas or Peter and Paul himself. Verse 5 says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants. Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. So there have been assignments given to the servants. Not all servants have the same assignment. Does that sound right? He says, as the Lord assigned to each. We don't even all have the same assignment in the church. I mean, the body is made up of different parts. Paul will talk about that later in 1 Corinthians 6. And we have eyes and ears and feet. We all serve the same ultimate goal. We have the same mission as we serve the Lord, and that is to glorify God and to bring others in to glorify God. But we have different functions. That function may be different because we're male or female, or because we're older or younger, or because of particular talents that we have, or because of uh, assignments that we have as, as teachers, or preachers, or elders, or ministers of another type, or deacons, and so on. And so we have each our own assignments, but all of us are servants of Christ and stewards. So what is Apollos? What is Paul? What is any teacher, preacher, leader, or anyone who serves? Well, they're not the king, not the queen, but the steward. We have been entrusted with the 
work of God in varying ways, each in his or her own way, but as a stewardship. The Mississippi River changes, right? As the water, so have flood season, and when the water goes back down, it's not the same river anymore. Did you think about that? I mean, sandbars move, and, and uh, there are even oxbow lakes now. Some good fishing in some of those there are oxbow lakes because there used to be a bend in the river, and then the river changed, and now the river's over here, and there's this strange-shaped lake now. It was a, just a big curve, and the river's no longer even part of the river. And uh, uh, in the old days, the uh, riverboat pilots couldn't know the entire river. They could only be familiar with a portion of the river. And they would, when it was changing, they were aware of that. And so they would pilot the riverboat over that portion of the river that they knew. The mysteries of God, the mission, the church, its young people, its elderly people, its function, its lighthouse function in the world has been entrusted to us for our portion of the river. And what I mean by that, it's been entrusted to us as stewards for our portion of time, our generation, our lifetime. Now, I'm glad that we have overlapping generations. That helps the next set of riverboat pilots to get familiar with what they're supposed to do. It helps the next generation of stewards to see how stewardship is done. But we have been entrusted in our time for our generation with the mysteries of God. Not to keep the mysteries, but to reveal them, to explain them and to share them. But we've been entrusted with it for a little while. We've been entrusted with the life of the church and the health of the body and the training of the young people and the care of those who are in need and the mission in our time and place. And your mission here is similar to our mission in Henderson, but it's different too, right? Different people, different location, different ways of getting things done perhaps with the same mission. And so we all share as each has been assigned in the stewardship of the mysteries of God. We received them from someone else. We will leave them in the care of others. Who did you receive knowledge of the mysteries of God from? Who did you learn from that uh, you were uh, sinful in the eyes of God and in need of forgiveness? Who told you that Christ died on the cross in order to purchase our redemption? Who led you to understand that if you put your trust in the Lord and obey him, you could be justified in the eyes of God, made righteous in the eyes of God. Whoever did that was fulfilling their role of stewardship with the mysteries of God, not to keep them secret, but to reveal them to you, to share them with you. And so they shared that with you and you in turn became a steward then for your time, your relatively short amount of time to do what you will with the great treasure that the master has put into our care for a little while. Now that's a frightening thing to me. It's a, it's a burden in a way. It's, an, it's a uh, sobering thought to consider that God has entrusted to me his most precious business to be entrusted with the knowledge of God, the mysteries of God that the world needs to hear, to be entrusted with the church to be entrusted with children, 
to be entrusted with the care of souls and the care of family and the care of those about me is a great thing. But in the two images now, we've talked about servants and stewardship, but in the two images of 1 Corinthians 3, there is encouragement about how we do this, but there is also great comfort in the image that Paul presents. In the very next verse from where we were reading in verse 5, in 1 Corinthians 3 in verse 6, Paul talks about these stewards in an agricultural way. I grew up on a farm and we raised cotton and soybeans and cows and a lot of cuckleburrs. And we had a garden as well and so on. And so I understand this agricultural metaphor a little bit. Paul says we're all stewards, each in the role that, that uh, God has assigned. And then he says in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, I planted, Apollos watered. And who else was involved? And God gave the increase. What does that mean? It means God made it grow. God was at work. This is very encouraging to me. We're not in this alone. We're not doing this by ourselves. If the church in Mount Juliet grows, is it because of any one individual person all alone that it grows? Is it if you took all of the human beings and the human effort and the human thinking and thought and planning and, and you took all of that human effort and put it together, would that explain the healthy growth of a congregation here or anywhere? Is that enough? And that's not how Paul understood it. He understood our role to be one of planting and watering. God gave the increase. Seeds. You know, we have discovered some seeds in the ancient Near East, in places like Egypt, where it's real dry and things preserved, mummies and things like that for a long time. Uh, some seeds there that are still viable. In other words, that could still be planted and grow. The seed can sit on the shelf for a long time. And somehow, in a way that we cannot fully explain, it has within it the essence of life and a seed put in the right conditions will germinate it generally needs to be planted in the soil and it needs to be watered and then it grows and you know when we were planting cotton we didn't worry about turning all the seeds just the right direction so that the leaves would go up and the roots would go down did you ever worry about that with anything you planted that's kind of silly isn't it but now stop and think about it for just a minute. You put this dead looking little grain or kernel or seed in the ground. You put it there, you cover it with a few inches of soil and you water it and you wait till the soil's temperature is right. And that thing will germinate and completely change in its appearance. And the leaves always go up and the roots always go down. What wonderful gardeners you are that you figured all that out, that you are able to plant that seed and turn it just right. You never get it wrong. The roots always go down and the leaves always come up. That's amazing. What great. We did that with millions of cotton seed and soybean seed. And we never once put a seed in upside down. We never once had the roots come up and the leaves go down. Obviously, right, this is silly. This has nothing to do with us. What an amazing thing. 
What an amazing thing that the seed can do this. That is the power of God. God created that. I can't do that. Couldn't fathom having to do that. And then it grows and it produces the crop that it's supposed to produce. And it's wonderful things for us to eat or for us to use to make clothes or, or for some other purpose. Wonderful things grow. How does that happen? It happens because we plant and water and wait for the mystery of God to do what God created it to do. Now, what is my role as a steward in the life of the body, in the life of a congregation? Well, I have accepted the mantle of teacher and preacher, and so I have the responsibilities that go along with that. Am I responsible? Can I take credit every time a person obeys the gospel? Well, let's think about that for a minute. If I reach out to a person and contact them and say, would you like to study? And I invite them over to the house and we have study for a few weeks. And that person says, um, I, I think I want to be a Christian. I think I want to be a part of this. I, I want to be forgiven. I want to go to heaven. I want to serve the Lord. Can I take credit for that? And the answer to that is no. I can take credit for the fact that I helped plant some seed. I think Paul does that. Is that bad? If a, if a seed planter says I planted some seed, if I say, well, you know, we had, we had Bible study together and uh, look what the Lord has done. I think that's just acknowledging that there was some seed planting, but it's always look what the Lord has done. I find this extremely encouraging as we try to be stewards. We're not in this on our own. In this story I told earlier about the king with the throne being empty and the steward being down here. There is a major difference in our situation is that we are stewards down here, but the king is on the throne and he's present ruling over his kingdom and he's with us. He promised never to leave us and he's with us and he's at work. He's at work through us, on us, in us and in the world. And so we're not left on our own here. Our stewardship, our role is to be planting and watering planting and watering. The soil makes a difference too, right? Let me say a word about that because I think it's an important way to keep our, our role in, in context. I, I guess what I really mean is a realistic view of our role. Um, a while back, a parent came to me in, I think it'd be fair to say in tears and um, I'm a parent too, so I'm sometimes in tears. And as we try to figure this, uh, figure this out, what's the best thing to do? But a part of the parent's comment is they were concerned about their older teenage child and concerned about, in this case, a boy's behavior. And it was pretty outrageous behavior if I were to go through the details. I'm gonna spare you the details, but it, was, it would make you uncomfortable to think about some of his behavior. And the dad, said, I'm a failure because my son is misbehaving in this way. What do you think? You think that's, is that the way we ought to think about people whose children don't do what they're supposed to do when they're 17, 18 years old? Should we say, well, there goes another failure as parents? 
if you try to reach out to someone as, uh, uh, as a Christian and you're trying to teach someone and help them to uh, obey the gospel and you pray about it and you plead with that person and you present them with scripture, you present them with your own faith and you try to persuade them and in the end they say, mm, I just don't think I want to do that right now. Are you, does that make you a failure as an evangelistic person? As stewards, there are some factors that are out of our control. So we plant and water and plant and water. We plant and water and in that way we are faithful to our task. If we think about it the other way, we may defeat ourselves before we even get started. Um, it's, uh, it's like someone recently said to me about uh, their own ministry and uh, he said, well, it's sort of like my bad golf. He said, I'm, I'm hitting just enough good balls to keep me coming back. Right? We're not in control of other people's hearts. We're not in control of the process. The only thing that we can take stewardship responsibility for is fulfilling our part of planting and watering. Now, sometimes we don't do that and we need to step up and be teachers and spokesmen and spokeswomen for God and water and encourage, but we recognize that when we plant a seed and we water it, there's something that's powerful about the message of the gospel. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joint and marrow. I mean, the word of God has its own power, but it is dependent, as Jesus told us in Matthew 13, on the quality of the soil. So we've talked about our stewardship and we've talked about our role as planting and watering and we've talked about the power of God and even gone further to say there's this issue of the soil that's somewhat out of our control. Now how do we think about all of that in a practical way? Well, I'm a steward of the mysteries of God. If I'm a part of the body of Christ, I have some role in that. I'm comforted by the fact that it's not all up to me and that encourages me to keep scattering seed, watering with encouragement, offering prayers, even though I don't know how it's going to turn out. I don't know how it's going to turn out in every person's life that I try to touch or every person I try to encourage. But we keep going. That's our role. If you're teaching a children's Bible class and not everybody seems to be listening and you can't get everybody to come consistently and be faithful in their attendance. And some of the young people that you teach in class, you see when they get a little older, they just sort of disappear. Don't give up. Some of those seeds may stay there for many years before they germinate. You're not in control of the process. Don't give up. Someone else may come along later and water the seed at just the right time in which it does germinate. Keep sowing the seed. Keep watering, encouraging, and planting, and teaching, and inviting, and praying, and doing all of the things that we do as stewards of the Lord's business, recognizing that He is at work and we're not in control. And to come back to speaking about our own children and our own families for just a second, when my children were smaller, I I thought I was in control of them, and I, I pretty much was. I have uh, uh, some stories to tell about that. I have a picture of my, she's now seven at the time, she was probably four, standing in the corner. And she's one of those, she has to stand in the corner. That's equal to what some others would take, you know, several beatings with a sharp 
implement, you know, to get their attention. But standing her in the corner worked pretty well. And uh, I sent a picture of her in the corner to Grandma, and Grandma just cried. Why are you making that baby stand in the corner? My oldest two kids, when we leave them at Grandma's house, I would tell her, say, you know, they were about the same age, and they got more spankings for fighting with each other than anything else. It's a family tradition. I have three older brothers. But anyway, we, uh, and so I would tell uh, Grandma, I say, you know, if they, you know, correct them if they need it. If they do something they're not supposed to do, tell them. If they need spanking, give it to them, correct them. And she would come home. They were good as gold every time, good as gold. Finally, she told me, she said, I don't understand why, what you're even talking about. I hear you talk about well, these kids got in trouble. With that. She said, they never do anything wrong. And I said, I know, because it says in the Bible, there is no sin where there is no law. So <laughs> when they're at your house, that's probably what happens. But the reality is that as parents and even grandparents, and more and more grandparents are having to function as parents, uh, that with our children, we're not in control. When they were smaller, we, it seemed more like we were in control because when we gave them consequences, they probably, when they were smaller, responded better. But the older they get, the more we realize we're not in control. A woman came to speak with me. She was very upset. An incident had happened at her house with a 12-year-old boy, and, and something really bad had happened, and, and she was upset about it. And it was, it was someone else it was involved and had done something bad, and she was so angry with herself, so angry with herself. And I said, tell me why you're thinking that way. She said, it was my house. And I let this happen. Really? Well, tell me what you mean. It's my house. I'm in charge. Oh, okay, so, you, so you're in charge of everything at your house? Well, yes. And you're in control of everything that happens at your house. Well, yes. I said, no, you're not. She looked at me. She just about punched me in the face. What do you mean? I am too. That's my house. Yeah, it's your house. You own the house. You're not in charge of everything that happens at your house. Yes, I am. Well, why didn't you stop this from happening then? Well, I wasn't there. That's right. You have responsibilities, but you're not in charge. You're not in control when it comes to what other people do, even if they happen to be your offspring, one or two or three generations down the line. You can respond, you can teach, you can discipline. I hope you'll do all of that. But we also have to acknowledge what the Lord himself acknowledges, and that is that he has given every human being freedom that he will not revoke. I wish he would. I'd start with me. I'd start with me and say, Lord, take away my freedom. Make it so that I'll never disobey you again. Program me, brainwash me, do whatever. Take control of me, Lord. Make it so I'll never, ever be tempted and disobey you again. And so far, he hasn't done it. Instead, what he says is you keep surrendering to me. And when you mess up, you keep coming back. And that's the way we're going to handle this. And it's the same way with other people, too. In the story of the prodigal son, the father, in the story of father of two sons, really, the father there represents God, does he not? 
God who is forgiving, God who welcomes home. But at the beginning of that story, when the younger son says, give me my money, I'm leaving, the father lets him go. I hate that part. I got three children, I hate that part. But it confronts me with the truth that God gives us freedom and he's given it to every human being and I'm not in control. And I say that in the context of thinking about our role as stewards again. Can I control the outcome? No. I can control some, some of the input. I can control my input. I can control whether I'm sowing seed, whether I'm teaching, encouraging, whether I'm setting a good example, whether I'm watering and helping in every way. That part is my part of stewardship. And I really want to see the good outcome. And, and I keep an eye on whether or not the seed seems to be growing. And I think, well, maybe I should do more. Maybe I should fertilize it. Maybe I should water it some more. Maybe I should water it less. And I'm looking at that, but I'm not in charge of the outcome. The Lord has put within the seed his great power, but it depends on the soil as well. I'm encouraged because the Lord is at work in the process. I see a little more clearly when I recognize my role as one of planting and watering, but not being so arrogant as to think that the outcome totally depends on me. And I'm helped to be a more faithful steward. I'm helped because I'm not alone. I'm helped because things that look like failures to me don't shut me down. Oh, I'm just terrible at this. I'm not very good at this. I tried to talk to this person, they wouldn't listen to me, and so I just give up. You ever feel that way? My job is to do the best I can to encourage, but I'm just a steward Managing the best I can. And then after my time is done, then other people will have their opportunity, their stretch of the river, their time on earth to be manager. So right now I'm just doing the best that I can. In Matthew chapter 25, you remember the parable of the talents, right? There was a man given, a servant was entrusted with five talents and one with two and one with one. I just want to point out that a talent, we, we get a little confused on that parable because a talent meant money. It was a certain amount of money. And so one servant's entrusted with, say, $5,000, one with $2,000, one with $1,000. And having been entrusted, the master goes away to see what they will do. And they don't all do the same, do they? The one who was entrusted with the $5,000 gets, uh, he manages to earn $5,000 more. And the one that only got $2,000 managed to earn $2,000 more. Is the master equally pleased with both? Yes. They didn't both have the same responsibilities. They didn't both have the same talent. You see, what he really re did, he recognized they already had talent and he gave them an opportunity to see what they would do with it. But it's the other guy that worries me, the guy that just got the $1,000 or the one talent. And the master recognized that his capabilities were less than those of others, but he still gave him a responsibility that he thought was equivalent to his ability. And what prevented the one talent man from doing any good? What prevented it? Fear. Fear. He tells the master, I knew that you were a hard man. 
What does that mean? It means I knew that if I didn't do well, you're going to let me have it. I knew that you were a great businessman and shrewd and strict and you wanted to see a profit. And I just thought, oh, if I lose what you've given me, I'll be in big trouble. So I just buried it. And the Lord is exceedingly unhappy. And the man gets severe punishment. We cannot let fear shut us down from being stewards in whatever way, whether we're talking about as, as parents teaching our children. We have to be fearless. Get in there, wait in there, and stay in there. Fighting for our children's souls. Not worried about what the world thinks or worried whether they think we're their best buddy or not. The question, that's not our job, really. Be their best buddy is to be the good steward. Uh, to be fearless in our continuing to uh, talk to people who are not Christians about their soul. The number one obstacle to evangelism today is fear. It's not persecution. It's not lack of knowledge. It's not lack of opportunity. It's fear. Fear that somebody won't like us. Fear we won't know what to say. Listen, just share with someone the grace that you've experienced. Share with them the good news that you've experienced. Share with them this simple message. We're all sinners. But we can be made right in the sight of God through the grace that's in Christ Jesus. That's not so bad, right? That actually sounds kind of good. And fear can keep us from doing that. We'll be like the one talent man if we do. As stewards of the mysteries of God, let's recognize that God is at work. The outcome depends on more than just us. The power of God is in the message of the gospel and our responsibilities, plant and water. Water, 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 plant some more and water, water, water some more. So the first image was that of a steward. The second was that of a seed being planted and God giving the increase. And the third one that Paul mentions is a building. And uh, so after uh, describing the ones who water and the ones who plant in verse 9, Paul says, we are, we are God's fellow workers you are God's field, God's building. So he changes from field to building, from agriculture to construction. Okay? Verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. You see, see how that compares? He said, I planted a seed and Apollos watered. Here he says, I laid a foundation and someone else built on it. Similar idea, just a little different image. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Let's talk about our foundation here for a second. Just like the power of God is in the seed, when we change to a construction image, a construction metaphor, the strength of God is in the foundation. It's, a, it's the same point. Just a different image. The strength of God is in the foundation. Other foundation can no man lay than that which Paul says he has laid, and that is Jesus Christ. So let's talk about the foundation uh, for a few minutes. We don't have a lot of time left. I'm sorry to say we could talk for a while about these things. But this foundation. I get the opportunity to talk to quite a few people about their spiritual lives. And a young lady comes in a while back and she's very uh, distraught 
she says that she has been involved in a sexual affair that is sinful. And she's very sad about that. She doesn't want to let go of that. She knows that it's not right. And in a, in a thoughtful conversation, she'll say, I know it's not right. But then she will say, but I am so lonely. I'm so lonely. A young man comes in and uh, he says, I've been really struggling with the Internet and pornography. And I know it's wrong and I don't I don't want to be I don't want to be doing that. But I just get so overwhelmed with life sometimes that I just I turn to it to try to forget about my stresses. Another young man comes in and he says, I'm doing better. I'm doing better. I had some real struggles with alcohol, but I'm really trying on a daily basis to turn my cares over to the Lord. And the Lord must be at work because I'm doing better. And all of these stories have, they're just different verses of the same song. And that fundamental theme is that all of us have a hole, so to speak, a need within our hearts. We, we want to feel good. We want to feel loved. We want to feel significant. And we want to feel like our life has a purpose. And we run from bad feelings. So sometimes we run to sin. Sometimes we just run to other things. Sometimes we keep ourselves busy with work or keep ourselves busy with entertainment or uh, focus on even things that are healthy like athletics and so on. But we keep ourselves busy maybe so we don't think about the inner disquiet that we have. But, but all of us come into the world with a need to feel loved, to feel significant, and to feel like we have purpose. And we will pursue any number of things to try to fill up that need. But the need is infinite. As soon as we have one or the other experience that causes us to uh, feel good momentarily and so on, uh, as soon as the uh, award ceremony is over or as soon as the money is spent or as soon as the momentary sinful pleasure is over, then we're right back to having need. And we will throw a million things into that infinite space to try to feel loved, significant, and purposeful in the world. And the only thing that can fill up an infinite hole is something infinite. That need that we have to feel loved and significant and purposeful can ultimately only be met in a healthy and complete way in God. We can feel very unlovable when we look at ourselves and we look at our shortcomings and sins. We look at our weaknesses and faults and we can be very harsh critics. I've never met anyone who was a harsher critic of someone else than some of the people I've met who were critics of, them own, of their own selves. No mercy. For themselves. No grace. No excuse was good enough. God is greater than our hearts. 
And even if our own hearts condemn us, he is still greater than our hearts. And he can change us. He can make us so that where we didn't feel like we could be loved, we come to recognize that we are loved. And we, when we do, will stop trying to throw in some of the trash that we throw in to fill up that space. He can make us feel significant and purposeful. Significant because we're made in his image. Purposeful because we have a place and a purpose in his kingdom. We are stewards of the mysteries of God. Not to keep them mysterious, but to share them with others. When we lay the foundation of Jesus Christ into the lives of people who have this hole, this need, we offer them the solution that they've been looking for in every other place, the love, the purpose, the significance they've been looking for in so many other places. We offer them and there is no other foundation that anyone can lay that will meet that need than Jesus Christ. Has he done that for you? Is your faith such and your life such that you have found that the Lord has met that need in your life? If he has, then you don't need to know much else to have something to share with another and be a steward of the mystery of God. We'll say a little more about these things in our invitation in a few minutes. I thank you for your generous attention.